morning, glory, America. Bonjour, hi, Canada. Hugh Hewitt in the Mobile Relief Factor.com studio in Aspen, Colorado, where the Aspen Security Forum enters into its third day. Actually, its fourth day. And I am surrounded by deep blue audiences, uh, and most of the panels are pretty blue as well. But luckily, I have the Hillsdale Dialogue to revitalize me. Each week at this time, it's hillsdale.edu, where you get all that you need from Hillsdale, including a free Imprimus subscription if you sign up. At hillsdale.edu, you'll get Imprimus uh, delivered to you every single month, a speech digest that brings you the very best in conservative thinking. And each radio last hour of the week is the Hillsdale Dialogue, where I talk with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, or one of his colleagues, about one of the issues that matters big picture for a long time. We go up to 30,000 feet in the Hillsdale Dialogue. They're all collected at hugh4hillsdale.com. And this week, I'm pleased to welcome back Dean Paul Marino. He's the William and Bernice Grucock Chair in Constitutional History. He's a professor of history and the Dean of Social Sciences at hillsdale.edu, back from his exile to Washington, D.C., to the land of Michigan. Dean Marino, welcome back. Good to talk to you. Thanks so much for having me on the show, Hugh. Uh, Let's go back a little bit and explain to people uh, what you teach at Hillsdale, what you did at the Kirby Center, so we can ground them in how great it is to have you available during the Kavanaugh hearing uh, drama, which is about to begin to uh, unfold. Yes, I teach uh, constitutional history. And uh, at Hillsdale, we have uh, a course that's taught by our politics department, uh, Constitution 101, that's required for uh, all students. Uh, we also have a very fortunate to have Justice Stephen Markman of the Michigan Supreme Court who teaches a course in uh, constitutional law for us. So I do a two-semester course in you know, sort of starting with the Constitution and explaining how we got from the founders to, to today. You know, uh, uh, Dean Marino, I've often, I've been teaching con law for 22 years, and I reject, I've always rejected the idea that that course should begin with Marbury versus Madison, and I make the students look at the date of it. Why do you think uh, it should not begin? If you agree with me, maybe you start your con law course with Marbury v. Madison. I don't. How do you do it? No, I do it uh, chronologically. So I really start, you know, really, I, I give some background in sort of the Greeks and Romans and the, the Hebrews. A lot of what we do in our Western Heritage course about you know, the idea of natural law and the rule of law. Uh, but you're right. I mean, Marbury against Madison is one of the most uh, exaggerated myths in all of U.S. history. And it was a, you know, a deliberate concoction by lawyers and judges uh, to inflate the importance of the, of the Supreme Court. And, yeah, usually in, when law professors teach con law, they, they start with Marbury as the basis for Brown versus Board of Education. And that's really the birth of, of constitutional law for them. That is exactly right in a nutshell. And I always begin con law. For, you know, first day is, hello, who are you? Second day is a brief history of nearly everything. I call it that. And I begin, and I think you've got to know the Jews, the Greeks, the Romans, the English, and then you get to the American system. And then you start with the revolution, and you've got to go to the Federalists after the Constitutional Convention, and then you can start talking about what the Supreme Court is or isn't. I'm, I'm just curious. We've, we've never discussed this. Is that your pedagogy as well? Absolutely. Uh, the, the other course is that politics people teach it essentially as a course in political theory. And uh, constitutional law you know, will take a subject area like the First Amendment or something like that and you know, bring it uh, from the beginnings up to the, up to the present. But I try to cover the context especially, uh, the politics, the economics. I, I get quite a bit into uh, public policy uh, in these courses. And a lot of the history of law, um, you know, not just public law, but you know, private law, things like torts and contracts and how they've shaped uh, the development of, of America. So I try to be as broad and contextual as possible. 
I think, Dean Marino, you and I approach this the same way, and that's why I agree so much with your Washington Examiner piece. GOP has to act to confirm Kavanaugh before it's too late. I know you don't pick the headlines, but before we go into how Kavanaugh arrives at a particular time and place at the Supreme Court, tell us why you think there's urgency. Yeah, the, uh, the, the ability of a uh, party to keep control of both the presidency, who chooses the judges, and the Senate uh, to confirm them uh, often doesn't last very long. And so, I mean, it's, I think, extremely unlikely that the Republicans are going to lose the Senate in the midterm elections. Uh, but the time frame is usually pretty short. And if you look at the last three presidents' appointments, they've all been crammed into the, uh, one election cycle, one period in which uh, they had both the presidency uh, and the Senate. Uh, at the very beginning of the Clinton administration, before the 1994 uh, landslide, uh, at the very end, or sort of in the middle of the George W. Bush administration, and then at the very beginning of the Obama administration. So this is, this is Trump's sweet spot, you know, the first uh, half of his first term. I hope his first term. And, you know, uh, Dean Marino, you came up with something I had not thought about in your, in your article. Clarence Thomas is now the only Supreme Court justice nominated by a president of one party and confirmed, albeit narrowly, by a Senate controlled by the other party. I had not thought of that. You're absolutely right. Yeah, and when Scalia, Justice Scalia passed away, the amazing thing about him, of course, is that although well, he was confirmed by a uh, still Republican majority Senate, but it was, it was unanimous. Uh, you know, that wasn't that long ago that even somebody as you know as as consistently conservative as uh, Scalia uh, could get a pass like that. Uh, things so much more is at stake now in the Supreme Court, and the parties have become so much more polarized that the idea of seeing something like that again is is inconceivable. So now let's put this uh, in the context of a story I did last hour. Mitch McConnell threatened Democrats today that he would keep them there all October if they slow walk the Kavanaugh nomination over demands for documents that will require elaborate declassification because of Kavanaugh's time in the White House. And I tried to warn the White House about this. That's why I wanted, among other reasons, Ray Kethledge of Michigan to be nominated because I just saw this coming and they're going to do it. And Brett Kavanaugh's a fine nominee, but they're going to fight every inch of the ground. It's going to be political trench warfare. How does it turn out, do you think, Dean Marino? Well, again, I was, uh, when, when the Scalia vacancy opened up, I was really, I doubted that McConnell was going to uh, do what he did. Uh, you know, say that we're not going to hold any hearings about this until after the election. Uh, but he stuck to his guns. Uh, I was really doubtful that he would use the nuclear option uh, for the Supreme Court after you know, Harry Reid had done it for the, uh, the D.C. Court of Appeals, but he did that. So he's you know, really turning into sort of a modern-day Lyndon Johnson in the way that he's using the Senate rules to, to get results. So I'm, I'm pretty confident now in, in McConnell. Uh, now, now let's. I agree. He has been magnificent. Although yesterday, Ryan Bounds had to be withdrawn because he's lost two Republicans. And when you've got a fifty forty nine Senate with the ailing John McCain um, recovering in Arizona, you can't have any margin for error. And Ryan Bounds went down late. Uh, do you think there's any possibility of that happening to Brett Kavanaugh? I haven't heard anything about uh, any of the Republicans apart from uh, Collins and Murkowski. And I think the big question is, can you pick up any of the you know the, the red state Democrats, uh, Manchin and Heitkamp? And, uh, you know, well, all you need is, is 50. So uh, I, every, everything that I've heard, everything I've read indicates that it should be uh, should go through. So I'm I'm pretty confident. Now, I mean, he arrives I've, at a particular moment. I'm sorry. I've been wrong about everything I've predicted with regard to uh, President Trump, except for Supreme Court appointments. <laughs> Welcome to my club. Okay, you and I can have dinner together, and we'll we'll just talk about how wrong we are about everything. Uh, but but we are right about the courts. And Mitch McConnell confirmed twenty 
three and twenty-four, I think, this week. Uh, even with bounds being withdrawn as federal appeals court judges, H- how do you put the the impact of the president and the Republican majority in the Senate in terms of on the overall federal judiciary at this point, Dean Marino? Yeah, the, the stuff that's going on below the Supreme Court is in some ways even more important because uh, the court today only hears about you know seventy appeals uh, a year. Uh, so in, in you know, the vast, vast majority of cases, it's the courts of appeals uh, that have the last word on you know, really important constitutional questions. And I think we've seen the way in which uh, federal district courts uh, have, you know, by imposing nationwide injunctions, uh, are also you know, having a tremendous impact. But I think Congress really needs to do something about, about that because that's a real abuse of, of power. So the lower federal courts matter a great deal. And in the early part of the Trump administration, I'd heard a lot of people saying that he was going to slow uh, about this, that they weren't uh, confirming justices quickly enough. And uh, now I've seen sort of complaints from the left that they're, you know, they're outstripping the Obama administration and uh, uh, they're sort of uh, railroading these, uh, these nominees through, which is fine with me. Yeah, they are not. It's fine with me, too. They are not railroading. They are acting as a Senate majority ought to act. And let's pause there before the Senate majorities are what were empowered by the Constitution to act. The filibuster is an extra constitutional device. The blue slip is an extra constitutional device. The Senate has a majoritarian uh, flavor. And I just wonder if you if the if they had wanted super majorities, the Constitution's framers use them in other places, Dean Marino. Absolutely. That's very explicit in the few cases where uh, you want that. And as, as Lincoln said in his first inaugural, you know, minority rule uh, as, a, as a permanent arrangement uh, can't work. Uh, there's no substitute for uh, constitutional majority rule. And I know there, there are some conservatives who still preserve the idea of the Senate as being sort of the more deliberative, sort of wiser uh, upper chamber and would like to maintain the filibuster, at least the 60-man uh, filibuster for, for ordinary legislation. But I'd like to see it go across the board and uh, have it be... Um, you know, we will come back and we'll talk about that with Dean Paul Marino of Hillsdale on the Hillsdale Dialogue. All things at hillsdale.edu. Stay tuned, America. It is the Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt from the ReliefFactor.com mobile studio in Aspen. It is the Hillsdale Dialogue, our weekly dive into something that matters big and forever this week with Dean Paul Marino, he is the William and Bernice Grucock Chair in Constitutional History and Dean of Social Sciences at Hillsdale College. Uh, Dean, before we go back to your column in the Examiner and the, and the Kavanaugh fight that is brewing, I'm thinking about at Hillsdale, there are occasional gatherings of conservatives uh, to discuss originalism in the Constitution and first principles in political philosophy. Is it three or four times a year that Hundreds of people gather there for that sort of exercise? Yeah, four times a year we have what's called the Center for Constructive Alternatives. Uh, so it's a lecture series. Uh, one of them is usually devoted to economics and economic theory. Uh, one is about sort of culture, uh, movie, theaters, music, music, things like that. Uh, and the other two are generally about, about politics. So yeah, two in the fall semester and two in the spring semester. No, I, I've, I've occasionally come and participated in that. I, I want to get your reaction. I'm at the Aspen Security Forum, which is put on by a nonpartisan think tank. But 90% of the people here, I think, uh, voted for Hillary. It's a deep blue gathering. Can you imagine what it would be like to drop Thomas Friedman into the Hillsdale uh, gatherings? That's what I'm feeling this week. It's discombobulating. We have had in the past. We have had uh, what you might call a, a diverse group of speakers at these uh, CCAs. I mean, this has been going on for for longer than I've been here over over twenty years, uh, and so you know, we, we do try to bring in some people who sort of mix uh, you know mix things up. 
Oh, there's a diverse group of speakers yeah. here, but the audience isn't diverse. Oh, I yeah. mean, it's probably 90% blue and 10% red. And I think, and the reason I bring this up, we are going to see votes on Kavanaugh and opinions on Kavanaugh divide, not by his jurisprudence, but by people's opinion of Trump. Do you agree with me on that? Oh, absolutely. Um, in fact, I think going back to many of these other, uh, especially Republican appointees who were uh, rejected by the Senate, uh, almost everybody admits in, you know, in historical uh, perspective that they were extremely well qualified uh, for the office, with an exception maybe of a couple of the, uh, the Nixon ones. Uh, yeah, the second. Uh, Hainsworth was good, but right, yeah. uh, the second right. guy was terrible. The Harold Carswell was the... You know, the there you go. The mediocrity. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think everyone understands this is, this is partisan, this is ideological. Uh, Kavanaugh was you know, a, a just a sterling nominee by, by every conventional standard. So, uh, and I think, again, I'm, I'm pretty confident they're going to fail and that he will uh, be confirmed. But, but let's look beyond that, because... Eventually, the Senate is going to go back to the Democrats. It always does. Mm. Uh, when that happens, if President Trump is still president, whether he's reelected or in his first term, I don't think they're going to confirm a single judge, much less a justice. Do you agree with me? That could be. In fact, one of the reasons I think that uh, Anthony Kennedy decided to step down was the prospect of you know the court being divided four to four and just being dysfunctional uh, because of the, the the number of justices and the prospect of something like the Scalia uh, you know. Continu- uh, vacancy continuing and becoming a permanent thing. Because um, there was a time when Scalia was uh, was absent where some people said, well, the court doesn't have to have a full complement. Uh, in some ways, it's, it's preferable because, in a way, you need a supermajority in order for the court to do anything if its numbers are, are even. And, in fact, the first Congress established a Supreme Court of six justices, which essentially meant you needed four out of six uh, to form a majority. So I, I think Kennedy didn't want that. Didn't want to see that. He wanted a court that was able to, you know, to function uh, more and more easily. But now, now that assume, and I am, I've got a pretty high degree of confidence, barring a black swan, meaning a, you know, a senator drives off the cliff, or or something happens that disturbs the fifty forty nine majority, and it might even get better if if Senator McCain can return to the fray soon. The uh, but but assume for a moment that the Senate does flip and we have paralysis. Uh, uh, well, I'll tell you what, we'll come back after the break and talk about that. Do you foresee that inevitably happening, um, uh, unless, Dean unless Marino? Uh, a partisan realignment, you know, unless Trump can really you know, sort of change the, uh, the electoral map in a, in a fundamental way, a la you know, FDR and the, the New Deal. Uh, which I, I've, again, I've been surprised at a lot of what Trump's been able to do, but to sort of realign uh, the party system like that might be a, a, a bridge too far. Think about this during the break. Eventually, believe it or not, everybody dies or retires. And so eventually the Supreme Court is going to have nine more vacancies. And eventually the country is going to have to figure out what to do when the Supreme Court is partisan. Not the people on it, but the process for putting people there. I'll be right back with Dean Marino. Stay tuned, America. It's the Hilldale Dialogue on the Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America, to the ReliefFactor.com studio in Aspen, Colorado. I am Hugh Hewitt. President of the United States has tweeted somberly, my deepest sympathies to the families and friends of those involved in the terrible boat accident which just took place in Missouri. Such a tragedy, such a great loss. May God be with you all. I'm pretty sure that everyone in my audience, red, blue, purple, and no color at all, agree with the president about that. I'm joined by Paul Marino. He's dean, of course, of the uh, Hillsdale College Department of Social Sciences. He teaches constitutional history there. And that brings us back to Brett Kavanaugh and why this matters so much. 
Uh, Dean, would you explain to the audience, I've, I've done it a lot, but let them hear from a fresh voice, a fresh pair of legs, if you will, about why this seat matters so much in the history of the Constitution. Well, uh, the, the, we, we were facing a situation when Justice Scalia died that if President Obama had been able to fill that seat, we would have had a solid liberal majority for the first time since 1969. Uh, it would have returned to the days of the, of the Warren Court and you know, liberal judicial activism. So keeping the Scalia seat just kept the court where it was, assuming that uh, Neil Gorsuch is going to be uh, much like Justice Scalia, and I think that will be the case. Uh, But this is replacing Anthony Kennedy, who had been essentially the swing vote. He had been the the number five uh, vote in almost all the close calls in the last couple of years. Uh, in effect, he, he was the Supreme Court, and you know, that made him, because the court is so important in terms of telling us, claiming to, uh, to tell us what the Constitution means, uh, he was pretty much the sovereign of the, of the United States. So this one was the one that I think you know, liberals were really uh, concerned about turning over. To fight for the, uh, the Scalia replacement really wouldn't have, uh, um, uh, wouldn't have changed very much. Now, I like to point out to people as well, they really don't understand how big a change this will be because they don't understand the rule of four. Mm -hmm. And when the chief justice, who is deeply an originalist, in my view, uh, he is also an institutionalist, which uh, may explain some of the decisions that upset our friends in the originalism school. But that if I'm right and he is actually a deep originalist and institutionalist, what changes because of the rule of four, Professor, as going forward? Yeah, well, the, the, the four votes that it takes to grant certiorari and to decide what cases the court is going to uh, decide uh, is really the most important procedural matter uh, of all, because in the old days, 100 years ago, the Supreme Court had to hear any appeal that anybody brought. You know, if you had the time and the money, uh, you were entitled to hear your, have your case heard by the Supreme Court. So they heard hundreds. They made, rendered hundreds of decisions, uh, many in very, very trivial cases every year. Since the 1920s, they've been able to control their docket, and now they pick only the really important cases. Uh, and they leave, as I said earlier, most of the other day-to-day stuff to the, to the circuit courts and the, uh, the district courts. So now they are deciding only the, you know, the really prominent, you know, high-profile, and often very controversial uh, decisions. So, yeah, deciding which cases the court is going uh, to hear uh, is, is another important part of the court's power. And if Justice Kennedy did not want to tackle an area, it was not tackled. Right, and right. if he did, the chief justice had to decide which way to go in order to assign the opinion. Therefore, he wanted a jurisprudential change when it came to same-sex marriage, and he got it. But he was reluctant to dive into the redistricting thicket. Now, I had an extraordinary interview a few years ago with Justice Breyer. came to my studio. We spent a couple hours and, of course, justices won't talk about pending cases and they won't talk about politics. And I know the rules of the road, so I respected it. But he did make the admission. I wonder what you think about this, Dean. I asked him what his greatest disappointment was. And to my surprise, he said the redistricting cases. And I've thought long and hard about that since then. Why do you think that is Stephen Breyer's greatest regret? I don't associate that as an issue that, that Breyer is particularly uh, concerned about. Um, I think of it more in the terms of, you know, administrative law. Uh, of course, he's very solidly on the liberal side when it comes to the, you know, social and, and religious issues. Uh, but that one, I think, is one that, you know, when, when the court entered the whole business of 
considering redistricting back in the 1960s, the, the one man, one vote decisions. That was really the beginning of sort of Warren Court. That's what made the Supreme Court a, a, uh, uh, such a controversial institution, because that is touching directly upon you know, the, the power of the legislature to do what, what legislatures do. Uh, it's not just the court overturning legislation, but you know, managing the legislative process. And I think that I think the court is you know, just just way too powerful already. And if it got into supervising, uh, you know, gerrymandering and districting apart from racial issues, uh, that would make it make it even more so. It would there would be not a single political question that the court didn't have its finger in if it went down that path. Exactly. Now, uh, the transcript of my conversation with Justice Breyer is posted. You can read it if you want. I went away from that. I puzzled over it for a long time. He is an old school liberal Democrat and he is very smart and he's also quite a nice gentleman. Uh, And he understands that if you get redistricting and you get it under the control of a liberal majority on the court, Republicans will always lose the maps that favor them and Democrats will never lose the maps that favor them. And eventually the legislative lower house and all of the state legislatures will go blue if they are involved in partisan supervision of partisan exercises. That's why the partisan Stephen Breyer was disappointed. (laughs) Well, the liberals like to complain about Bush versus Gore, you know, sort of an example of conservative political judicial activism. But when you consider what Bush versus Gore was like in the Florida court system, uh, you can see the kind of you know manipulation that you're talking about, where you know you you only count the votes that are doubtful if they're going to favor Al Gore was essentially yep. the Florida courts ruling. Now let's so redistricting uh, with a solid originalist majority will never come back except where racism right. tinges it because yep. that's a for. But let's also talk about what will also not come back. We will see the end of affirmative action because justice, the chief justice has written the the way to end. Racial discrimination is to end racial discrimination. It's a, it's a very clear line in the sand for him. And I think with the arrival of Kavanaugh, goodbye, uh, Michigan v. Bollinger, uh, uh, Bollinger v. whatever the case was. The, Gratz, the and Gratz, Gratz and Grands. Yeah. Do you agree with me on that? Yeah. In fact, and also what I really like is that uh, the Trump administration is doing things on the sort of executive side uh, of affirmative action. A uh, large part of that is just the you know, the, the labor department's uh, you know government contracting provisions. Uh, you know, affirmative action, what people call affirmative action, is is composed of so many different parts, so many different policies. And yes, I do think that if the court gets back and uh, Justice Scalia and I think Justice Thomas were moving in this direction to say that it's just a, a, a flat out violation of the Fourteenth Amendment, uh, that will sweep it sweep it away entirely. I also believe, and I want to hear, because you study this the same way I do, with a view on the long haul of where the court is slouching towards, to, to use a famous Borkian term. I think that, that we're going to see the free exercise clause resume its robust intention that Smith versus Employment Division, Justice Scalia's great heir, the only one I really can point to, will be reversed and that the free exercise clause is going to grow its teeth back. What do you think? Yes, and also what I'd like to see is even worse than the, I um, was when, when Congress passed the Religious Freedom Restoration Act and the court struck that down, uh, saying that only the court can be the one who interprets what our rights are under the 14th Amendment. I thought that was another, you know, sort of great moment in, in judicial supremacy. And, uh, yeah, this court, I would expect to take a more, uh, a more sensible attitude towards that. So, so let's talk about when and if this will reveal itself. How long does it take the court to shift towards an originalist point of view? Well, for, you know, the, the big one, the one everyone's talking about is Roe versus Wade. 
Uh, and I wouldn't expect that to be explicitly and clearly overturned you know, anytime soon, if, if ever. But I think the court is going to, you know, by a step by step, uh, just allow the states a lot more latitude about you know, how, they, how they regulate abortion. Uh, which the states were already in the course of doing uh, before Roe versus Wade. In fact, uh, the New York Times had a story uh, yesterday, the day before, about how New York passed a very liberal abortion law, although not as liberal as Roe Ro versus Wade, uh, in 1970 and became you know, sort of the, the mecca for women who wanted uh, abortions. So abortion and what you said, affirmative action, and those two, I think, were the most important policy impositions of liberal judicial activism. They were the two issues that when the American people had the opportunity to vote on them, almost never voted in favor of affirmative action or, or liberalized uh, abortion. So returning those to the people and to the states, uh, I think, will be the, will be the most important ones. But I think another really big one is in the field of regulation and administrative law. Uh, that's really obscure and complicated, and it's hard to get across to people why that's so important. Uh, but that's why I thought Neil Gorsuch was such a great pick. Uh, he, I think, more than just about anybody on Trump's list, understood the problem of the administrative state. And uh, Kavanaugh has already, uh, under his belt, some opinions that recognize a good originalist understanding of, of those issues. So I think those will come more rapidly, but probably won't cause, you know, cause so much controversy because they're, they're more difficult to understand. There was already the, the move to the major rule doctrine, and I don't want to geek out too much here, but <laughs> the courts had grown uh, weary of being told to defer to administrative agencies. So some of the lower courts were firing, filing, finding a way around what is known as Chevron okay, deference. Yep. And I think that's going to accelerate, Palmer. You know, what do you think? Yeah, in fact, this, this all goes back. Really, John Marshall gave one of the first uh, decisions about this, about what kinds of questions or details are important enough so that you know, the courts have to have to take notice of them. As everyone understands that there's you know, some degree of delegation uh, to the administrators is, is necessary. Congress can't write a law that's going to be you know, foolproof and perfect uh, in every case. And just having some sensible uh, idea of what the degree of deference has to be to these agencies, uh, the court is in, you know, moving in the direction where we realize these are big, important political decisions that these agencies are making. These are not just you know, interpretations of, of details. And I think that's exactly the way that John Marshall uh, saw it. And this court is going to get, again, back in sort of a, an originalist, sensible uh, view of what the, what the discretion that administrators can exercise. We can hope. When we come back, I'm going to finish with uh, Dean Marino on where I think the real revolution is coming when Kavanaugh is confirmed, and he is going to get confirmed, America. Please understand that this Alamo stance that is being taken by the Democrats is going to end up just like the people inside the Alamo did. Uh, over, done, dead, because Brett Kavanaugh is supremely well qualified to be in the Supreme Court. When we come back, where the real revolution is coming. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt from Aspen, the ReliefFactor.com mobile studio. I'm at the Aspen Security Forum and looking forward to another day of uh, very high-minded debate and talk about where we are and where we're going as a country uh, and tomorrow as well. But I'm concluding today's Hillsdale Dialogue. All things Hillsdale are at hillsdale.edu uh, with Dean Paul Marino of the Social Studies. He's a constitutional historian. Uh, he's dean of the Social Studies at Hillsdale and a marvelous expert to have on about the Kavanaugh hearings. Dean, um, the Constitution has a Fifth Amendment, the end of which provides that private property shall not be taken for public use without just compensation. It isn't quite a dead letter. But if you got five people who really believed in the original intent of the Constitution, 
This could rev up, I think, into a revolution in the way Americans' liberty is protected from uh, a grasping government at every level. Oh, absolutely. Um, in fact, the, the, the Kelo case, which would need to be overturned, uh, was a very unpopular decision in a lot of states. Uh, even my own state of Michigan, which is you know, not particularly conservative, uh, beefed up its own takings uh, laws to protect people against that kind of uh, you know, sort of rent-seeking and economic uh, manipulation. Uh, that we have to return to the idea that public use means public use. Things like roads and things that are open and accessible to everybody, uh, not just part of some you know, politician's idea of, of economic development. And states like, you know, again, I think you need to have a national standard uh, that, that would protect property rights everywhere in the United States. And, uh, yes, that would have, I think, very, very positive effects on the economy. You went to the second part of it, the public use, and yep. we can overturn Kilo and Midkiff and all that so that the government acting. But I'm more concerned with regulatory takings. And one of the first cases the court hears is about the critical habitat designation of the Endangered Species Act. It has the immediate effect of devaluing property, of the immediate effect of taking a property that was worth, say, $1,000 an acre and making it worth $100 an acre because people won't deal with endangered species. And it makes it a felony to touch an endangered species, even though under common law, the, the species on your land belong to you. Now, it's fine for the federal government to do that. I've always said they have the authority to do that, maybe under the uh, Interstate Commerce Clause. But if they do it, they should pay for it, Dean, and that they can't just steal people's property. Yeah, just compensation. Uh, and a lot of this is even before uh, there was a, you know, a while before the Fifth Amendment was uh, was applied to the states. Uh, and here the courts would often be able to overturn state regulation of that kind through the due process clause uh, of the 14th Amendment. A hundred years ago, when the court had a much you know, more robust sense of property rights, it was able to find other parts of the Constitution that would that would have the same effect. Uh, the revival of the takings clause by people like Richard Epstein in the, uh, in the 1980s. Uh, this is just a, a, another route uh, to achieve the same object. But it was never completed. It was begun, yeah. right? With a few cases, there was a, it was sort of like the uh, Commerce Clause limits began to come up out of nowhere, and they made a run at it in Asari, then they had to retreat. They made another run at it, and it got some teeth. It showed up even in Sibelius uh, in the Obamacare case. I think we're going to see real limits on federal power and real demands that individual liberties be uh, uh, respected. I'm really an optimist about this. How excited are you, just as a matter of the change we have long waited and worked for coming to fruition? Uh, it's certainly moving in the right direction. And I, I think you, 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 you got at the right idea that this stuff isn't going to be able to come down uh, you know, instantly. Uh, you know, we had a constitution that worked very well for 100 years, you know, protecting property rights and doing a lot of other things, maintaining you know, self-government. And it was eroded and chipped away at, mostly starting with the New Deal. And now we have these enormous barriers uh, to self-government. And it's true that people and institutions have you know, arranged their lives in such a way as to, to depend upon uh, this new system. So uh, you can't just sort of restore the original uh, constitution uh, in a day. But you know, dismantling it piece by piece, I think, you know, in a prudent uh, kind of way, is what the agenda of this uh, court should be. 
And last question for you, Dean Marino. What is your advice to Brett Kavanaugh, who may very well be listening? A lot of the judges <laughs> listen to the show every day in D.C. Uh, on these hearings, should he stick with the Ginsburg rule, or should he be more expansive in his theory of the of the Constitution? I think I think he's he's got nothing to hide. Uh, his opinions are, are are well regarded. People think they're you know just wonderfully crafted. Uh, I don't think they're going to be able to lay a glove on him in terms of anything you know substantive other than just sort of making the assumption that he has these, you know, that he has these prejudices that they're going to try to get him, uh, get him to express. Because I haven't seen anything. I mean, the stuff about, you know, the, the beer buying in college, I mean, that's, <laughs> that's pretty thin gruel. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't see that they... We are all convicted. <laughs> we are all... Uh, and I think, I think, you know, Schumer and the Democrats made a really big mistake in, you know, even attempting... Uh, the filibuster for uh, for Gorsuch, because as I said, you know, replacing uh, Scalia wasn't going to change anything. Uh, if they had saved, you know, exercised some judgment and some goodwill for this challenge, they might be in a better position. But again, I think that Trump picked somebody who was just so perfectly qualified that they really have a, a very daunting task ahead of them. Like you said, it's going to take a black swan uh, or, or some some you know, bombshell revelation. And that's why, getting back to my original point, McConnell's got to make this happen as quickly as possible. Dean Marino of Hillsdale College, thank you for joining us. A great piece in the Washington Examiner, a wonderful Hillsdale dialogue. 